Benvenuti to Kimberly's Italy, a podcast about our love of all things Italian. Or let's say that completely in Italian, Tommaso. Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted you to do it. (laughs) Un podcast da nostra amore di tutte le cose italiane. How's that? Next week, you're up. Exactly the way I would have said it. <laughs> Just try to practice rolling your tongue between now and next next Wednesday and we'll be all good. We've been together for 27 years. <laughs> I've been practicing rolling my tongue for 27 years and it still doesn't work. <laughs> good point. Welcome to episode 94, 94. There's, a, there's an example right there of rolling your tongue. Just say 94. Can you do it? 94. Dang. Okay. Yeah. We'll get you over to a little speech therapist and see what they can do. <laughs> I, I I dealt with that up until I was about 14 or 15. I know. Me too. I'm I not, did too. I'm not going back. <laughs> I'm happy not rolling my... Got it. Got it. Got it. All right. This episode is on the amazing, beautiful, intoxicating city of Siena. However, before, I just want to give a big shout out to a woman named Marla, who sent me an email to thank me for helping her plan her own epic road trip throughout Italy last summer. Her words, I read some to Tommaso, I actually read you the whole thing. Her words were so kind and thoughtful and, well, like touching, to be honest, weren't they? Very touching. Very nice. She said she posted it on Apple Podcasts. So I just looked before I came up here to record, and I now know, Marla, that you can write really well. Your uploadability to Apple Podcasts your didn't, posting ability didn't work out quite as well. Little, needs a little fine-tuning. <laughs> but you tried. But it's, it's the thought that counts. Exactly. There's just a couple of random sentences up there currently, but the moral of the story is Marla drove her teenage children from Venice all the way down to Sicily, over 2,000 miles with several stops along the way. And let me repeat here her parting words in the review that you cannot read on Apple. (laughs) She wrote, we fumbled, we stumbled, laughed, and created memories to last a lifetime. My kids got a great education in traveling to a foreign land. Would we do it again? Question mark. Heck yes, just not in August. Not in August. And not it's all uppercase. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and Marla is just like some other parents who can only take their children on vacation in August. Yet you can choose to avoid the most crowded cities like Venice, Florence, Positano, and Portofino, all of which Marla went to. <laughs> well, some people, some people. And she still had an amazing time. An amazing That's my time. point. And she hit the greatest hits. She did. She had an amazing time, but she just said she wouldn't go in August. But I found that so funny because those were her dream places. And I kept saying to her, Positano is going to be just chock-a-block. Just, I don't recommend it. I have to do it. I have to do it. I have another client right now that just has to do it, at least a day trip. So there you have it. She did have an amazing time regardless. And I commend her for driving into each of those cities. She figured out how to not drive in the car-free zones, and she prevailed with the gas station instructions that I told her. Her son was online 
or on the phone, I should say, on speakerphone when I was talking about that. I remember her saying, you're really making like a big issue out of this. I was like, you have to take this seriously. <laughs> and she and she wrote in her review and that whole gas station thing. It really is a thing, quote unquote. <laughs> I was like, yes, it is. So for those of you who have driven all over Italy, you know what I'm talking about. So thank you very much, Marla, for the fantastic review and your effort of putting it on Apple Podcasts. But that's why I wanted to share it now, since it's not really there. Allora, let's talk about the Tuscan city of Siena. Actually, I'm just going to interject. Tommaso and I will be in Siena in October, but we can't really wait until then to talk about it because it's such an amazing place. Tommaso and I will be driving every little back road of Tuscany and Umbria visiting all the Italians who work with me on my clients' trips, and we get to meet managers of the hotels and villas where I send clients and visit the vineyards and restaurants. And on top of all that, fun, we'll record episodes while we're on the road during the entire month. That will be fun, right? A little challenging, perhaps, no, technically? No, we learned a lot at Christmas while we were in Copenhagen and in Italy and we're going to change our equipment for this trip, and it'll be much easier and much more fun. Well, it was fun anyway. I just think yeah, it was fun. the quality will sound a bit better. Well, it'll sound a lot better, but also it'll be easier just to... Well, anyway, yes. All good. <laughs> All right. I don't want to get geeky here. Okay. Allora, I just want to share the story of my first trip to Siena. It's when I lived in Milano. And I became friends with this brother and sister. Their names were Marco and Anna, and they were both from Siena. They were born and raised there, but they also both went to Milano to university, and they stayed, much to their parents' chagrin. I was 32, maybe, and they were like 30 and 28. And we became good friends, and they invited me to go to their parents' apartment for a holiday in the fall. And I was thinking about it. Maybe it was Tutti Santi. Remember the All Saints Day I was just talking about in uh, Napoli in October, mm -hmm. November. But in hindsight, what was most important, well, I should say, regardless of what festival it was, what was most important about my first trip to Siena was that it was in the fall and the color of the light is so different. I'll explain that in a second. But first I have to mention that Siena is probably the second place in Italy that literally stopped me in my tracks. The first one was in Florence after my junior year abroad in Spain. And it was a typical story. You know, everyone would take the train on the Eurorail pass. And you'd go to wherever you wanted to go. You found the most affordable or nicest hostel you could by the train station so I dropped my backpack off and then I went to see the drama that I had studied in all my art history classes in high school and college. I was by myself on this particular trip and I was just walking through these narrow streets and you remember Florence, like most of the cities, they are maybe three or four story tall buildings. They're all basically the same height. So you just see sky and Eventually, you would see like the dome of a Duomo, but I didn't. I just kept walking, take a right, take a left. And then all of a sudden, boom, there on this little side street, you could see through the end of it was the facade of the Duomo of Florence. And I literally, 
that is the first time in my life I stopped in my tracks. Remember your first time seeing it? That green and white and red marble and that graphic design. It just... Just blew me away. Right? It blew me away because I'd only seen it in art history books Exactly. The same thing. The same thing. So... It was back before the interwebs. (laughs) So I had the same come to Jesus type moment in Siena, but not from the Duomo, which is also amazing. We'll chat about that in a minute. But from the Piazza del Campo, the main Piazza of Siena. But let me back up and tell you how Marco, Anna, and myself got to their hometown that weekend. So none of us had a car, but they had a friend who lent them a very sketchy car for the weekend. And we all got together at Marco's apartment. I remember their friend told him, you can find it tomorrow. I'll leave it by the corner of the cemetery. (laughs) Here's the key. The key will just start the car, but you know, like the doors don't lock. Because remember in the old days, you'd put your key into the door handle and turn it. Well, this car, it just kept turning, like (laughs) just in a circle. So you couldn't lock the car. And he said, it'll be by the cemetery. And um, all I want to say is be sure to check the oil every hour. <laughs> that was his parting words. We're like, ciao, grazie. Okay. So, is, do you have to stop to check the oil? Or can you just lean well, out the window? that's what he said. Yeah, you know, know. So we figured. Okay. Okay. So Marco, Anna, and I discussed that we should probably leave the next day, Saturday morning, early because it's about a five-hour drive. And Marco's suggestion was, well, if we the earlier the better because if something happened, like in case the car broke down, we could deal with everything in the daylight. And that made total sense. We're like, buona idea. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> So we left the next morning, probably at like ten AM or so, on our road trip down the autostrada past Parma, Bologna, Firenze, and finally to Siena. And I do recall that that trip in that car was smoky and it wasn't necessarily from honest cigarettes, but from the burning (laughs) oil. And I think we hung out at those, you know, the auto grill places I took you to, the gas stations along the highway. We'd stop for like half hour time just staring at the hood, (laughs) waiting to see the smoke, (laughs) afraid to kind of touch it and open the oil (laughs) cap, you know. So we finally got to the city in that car. And they were driving toward their parents' apartment, which was on the west side of Siena. However, in those days, this is a long time ago, Italy didn't have the car-free zones to protect the historic centers like they do now. So we just kept driving through these streets. And, you know, I was used to Milano, big buildings, big, wider streets. I was like, oh, Siena, this looks beautiful. Like, I was super excited to be there. And then all of a sudden... Uh, Marco decided to stop when he found a parking spot because he knew from experience probably weren't going to get any closer. So when you see one, take it. Because also in those days, there were no rules, no odd days, even days parking, no time frames. It was just like basically first come, first serve for as long as you wanted. So we left the car and keep in mind it didn't lock. So we just left it and hoped for the best. And Marco and Anna said something like, oh, we'll just walk you through the piazza on the way to our parents' apartment. I thought, okay. We just had backpacks, just chatting, walking around. And obviously, they know the main piazza is impressive, but 
I don't think they had any idea how blown away I would be. So we're just talking. And just like the episode in Florence where you turn the corner, in this case in Siena, I just turned the corner and just like stop. I stopped walking. I was completely speechless at a piazza. Like, isn't that kind of funny? And a lot of you might be thinking like, seriously, but it's that. Well, the piazza's got the beautiful tower. It's just magnificent. It is magnificent. And it's big. Very, very large and imposing, impressive. You name the adjective, it's all there. And keep in mind, like I mentioned, it was late fall and the sunlight in Tuscany is incredible all year round, but the color temperature in the fall is just a tad, a click warmer. So as we entered this piazza, the sun was setting, the color was on it, and all of a sudden, all I could think about was the color. And this Piazza del Campo is the name. It's this, again, massive, half-round, three-sided piazza with every single inch that you see consists of the colors of sienna, ochre, or red. And again, all I could think about was the color sienna that I had heard about my entire life from my mom, who was an art teacher in all my art classes in high school and then art history classes in college. Sienna was always mentioned, so much more than its sister colors of umber and but what about ochre. Bur- what about burnt sienna? Well, I'm getting there. <laughs> I think burnt sienna came about during a deep sunset like what I saw. <laughs> Standing there for the first time, seeing this place in the color, the word sienna that I had heard about for my entire life. And all of a sudden I was like there in the present, in real life with my own eyes seeing it. And again, it sounds a little crazy, but it was just one of a kind type moment in my life. So that was the second stop me in my tracks experience in Italy. And again, I think that afternoon fall light, it just helped everything. And obviously this is a long time ago, so there were less tourists, but what an experience, even down to, I can recall looking at this because I had never seen a collection of red bricks in the herringbone pattern. Mm-hmm. They cover the entire piazza. I had never seen that. So I remember like taking all this in visually, but still standing completely still, just like mesmerized by everything. <laughs> I think Marco and Anna were just looking at me like, you're a really sappy art history student. <laughs> I don't know. Well, it's very difficult to sort of grasp the reaction of people who come to a place like that if you're if you're, if you're so used to it. Exactly. They had never been to America. They were again, you know, so late were, late twenties. They had no idea what I'm uh, used to. What our version is: tar with with white or yellow lines well, laid oh, out. I know. I, all right. You know what? Now that you bring this up. Here's what I here's what I was thinking earlier. The foresight that Italians and Europeans had in the from all the way back to like the third, fourth, fifth century to plan, think about, and then build a piazza that allowed for public gatherings. The piazza came first. And then all the architecture, significant architecture 
surrounded it. Well, the piazza was the center of commerce. So the market days and everything would come there. And also, don't forget, most of those places were surrounded by uh, walls at one point for protection. So the piazza became a place where people would come and sell their vegetables and their meat and their cheese and everything. But also that piazza was then surrounded by houses, which were then surrounded by walls like Luca. They weren't necessarily surrounded by houses as much as the the city halls, the equivalent of that, yeah, like that, significant municipal buildings. But I was thinking earlier that in America, we do the opposite. In a city, we build a tall, the tallest building ever, the second tallest building ever. Build, build, build. And then there might be some regret like, oh, we don't have enough public space. Like, for example, take City Hall in lower Manhattan, beautiful French looking building. And then there was a teeny bit of grass in front of it. They left it, or I should say there was a teeny bit of space in front of it going toward the Brooklyn Bridge. So they planted grass on it and then they block it off with a fence because you can't sit on the grass. You know what I mean? So the concept or just the foresight that Europeans had to make a public space for gathering or selling your wares, whatever, is awesome. And we in America are not used to that. So there I was at 32 years old, used to, 31 maybe, used to Milano and the big piazzas, but filled with traffic and busy commerce, you know, a crazy city. And I went to this little village or village, small city of Siena, and was just mesmerized by this particular piazza. So a little bit of the history of this piazza that I'm so obsessed with. (laughs) It was commissioned in 1325 to symbolize the power of the city and where civic and political holidays could be celebrated, just like we were discussing. However, the quote-unquote town council, as I'll call them, was smart about this. And in 1297, they put into play guidelines where the architecture had to be homogenous and adhere to that main plan that they came up with in 1297, thereby ensuring the stunning visual that you still see standing today. So think of that. When you walk into Piazza del Campo for the first time, think of how those town council members, mm, 30 years before it was commissioned, made the plan, and the simple fact that it stood the test of time for 698 years. That's young in Italy. I know, (laughs) right? The other impressive testament to time in Siena is the Basilica of Santa Maria Assunta, the Duomo of Siena, which was completed in 1263. And when Tommaso and I were talking about this episode the other day, he on his own did a lot of research and I came up for uh, lunch or dinner or whatever it was. And you're like, oh my God, do you know that the Basilica, the Duomo of Siena, blah, 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 he went on and on. And I secretly was like, I've converted him to a church lady lover. No, this is an exception, church lady. (laughs) This is an exception. I have to tell you because... Yes, I do dig this church. <laughs> I do. And it is, it is of all the churches so far in Italy, and we, I love the one in Bologna. Which San was, Petronio. Yes, you were completely blown away by that. I was. And I was also blown away by the fact there was a pipe organ playing yes, there. That which was amazing. Is, was pretty nice. But the beauty of this church and all the artists that contributed to it is 
it's really astonishing because it is so adorned. I mean, the cathedral was built over the course of 150 years, from 1226 to 1380. I mean, that's a long time. But what really blew me away when I saw this, the pictures of this, and I started to look into it and deeper and deeper, and while you're listening to this, Google the the Duomo in Siena because you'll get an understanding of what I'm talking about. The zebra marble striping on the walls and the piers that hold up the, the church, it's just amazing. And if you got out there with a millimeter, I was zooming in on this. I was getting to the highest resolution I could. And if you got out a, a ruler with millimeters on it, you probably can't find much variation. <laughs> what site were you looking at? The I have n- I Googled it and I just started- no, but that um, Britannica or the English. I-, I don't know. I saw the images on your monitors uh, and they was, were amazing. I subscribed to the the Times of London. Yes, that was it. And it was an article about the, it was, the church. Those images were spectacular. Well, that was particularly the floor, which I'll get into in a right. second. See, you guys, he's loving the Duomo. Um, this one, you've got me. The rest, And you haven't even been yet. Imagine how you're going to react in well, October. Well, hopefully there won't be a gelato, gelato store outside, so I'll get taken away and go, there you go. Oh, I'm going to get some gelato. Sake. <laughs> that gelato store will be there when you get, get out. But the building, like the Duomo in Milano, stands on a stepped platform which gives it this dignity in in its composition. It's above. It's Mm -hmm. not based on ground level like a lot of the others are. The frontispiece is faced with white marble, and it's relieved with pieces of Siena, red, and Prado green marble with three highly recessed, ornate doorways that the arches, and I go back to the old standby, Sir Bannister Fletcher's and my history of Mm -hmm. studying architecture and set design and theater— how complicated it must have been to lay that out. And I'm sure everything, if you got a, went to Home Depot and got a laser beam, you know, a little laser thing and checked it out, you'd probably find it's all level. Perfection. Yes. But wait. Because, okay. <laughs> okay. I'm so excited. Right, I'm You're sucked, excited. I'm sucked in. I'm I sucked know in. it. I got wait it. Wait till you are there in person. Well, twice a year. They uncover, which is I know this the piece de resistance of yes. the of the most amazing floor in Italy, and that's saying a lot given the floors like the one in Bologna and the Prime Meridian and all that stuff. But it was laid by the pavement artist in 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 Siena. Now you go back to talking about the herringbone pattern mm-hmm. all the way across. These guys really turned to this church and sort of turned up the 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 effort well, a lot. Their mosaic floor panels. Tell stories. Exactly. Well, let me get into that. I just didn't know if you knew that. Here I jump. I I get into this and now she's got a, (laughs) oh, he's so smart. Anyway, the the carpets, which cover a lot of this in the cathedral, are rolled back twice a year to give visitors a glimpse of the vast expanse of marble flooring. And it was once described as the most beautiful floor ever laid. And Google it. I'm serious. And wrap your head around the skills required to do this with no YouTube videos to look at. While you do. <laughs> so these intricate designs, they portray philosophers and biblical scenes and normally kept covered for their protection, but they are shown off in October. We're going to be there in October. You jumped the shark again. <laughs> what do you call that? <laughs> Jumping Jump the shark? shark. I don't know. I've heard that term once or twice. Anyway. <laughs> The designs, they were created using interlocking pieces of colored local marble. And there's a reason why they have to cover them. 
because the fine detail that was achieved to carve all these wonderful things out was achieved by gouging lines in the stone, which were then filled with coloring. So that's why these are a little bit more delicate or a lot more delicate than a lot of the other stones. Those are called etched, etched mosaics, E-T-C-H-E-D. Just so you know, in order to etch, FYI. You have, <laughs> in order to etch, you have to gouge. I'm about to gouge her eyes out. <laughs> anyway, there's an art historian whose last name I can't pronounce. Try. Long pause, long pause. <laughs> Just try. Ma- Marilena Kachi Orjana. Okay, good, good effort. Okay, and she said, what makes the floor unusual is that we are in a church, and yet the designs there are philosophers like Socrates, Aristotle, Seneca, reflecting the Renaissance humanism inspired by like people like Pope Pius II, who actually was from Siena. And the floor was singled out by the 16th century art historian Giorgio Vasari as the most beautiful, largest, and the most magnificent floor that was ever made. And that's saying a lot for it Italy, right? It says quite a lot, right? So the carpets are removed <laughs> only twice a year. Uh, generally in July, and then again between August and October. We'll be there in October. Yes. So whatever we planned, we have to go back and adjust a little bit. So we make sure we're there to see this. Non c'è problema. Okay, but I'm not done yet about okay. this. So they started another grandiose project right next to this, which was essentially to add a transept onto the church. So a transept is the access of the church as you walk into straight access. It's a right angle to it, left or right. This one was to the right as you go into starboard. And it never got finished. But the panorama, because you can actually go up to the top of that and see over Siena, see down into the Piazza del Campo, see the, the, the Tuscan countryside, which looks like your classic Tuscan countryside from here. Lots of wonderful little trees growing. Cypress Ciprese. Right. Looks like a painting. Right. But you can go up to the top of this unfinished section. It's slow. It's a one-way spiral staircase. You can wait in line for a long time. Would you do it? Holy claustrophobia, Batman. I'm not sure. (laughs) I'll do it for you. (laughs) I'm not sure. I did do it in my first visit there. I'm not sure I can can take the time to get up there. I'll do it for you and take a photo. Thought about when visiting this, if you're going to go, um, shoulders and legs should be covered in order to vent. In all churches, yeah. That's right. They don't, sometimes don't enforce it, but be respectful and don't wear uh, wear that tank top with the short shorts in there. We're going in this fall when we're there in October. I'm all in. Bravo. And I just want to say one more thing. See. That you always stop me on this, but the fact that they laid all this out, it is mind boggling to look at that they didn't have a computer. I mean, it is really, truly amazing. When you look at how we sort of worked with Adobe Illustrator and AutoCAD and everything, things aren't even one one millionth as complicated. <laughs> and, you know, people can't visualize unless it's CAD. I know. Think about these guys sitting around visualizing how this is going to look and just in their mind and maybe a couple of sketches. It's, it's mind-blowing. It truly is. The one thing I'd like to point out that um, you didn't share, which I think is important, the floor... These floor panels in Siena took six centuries to finish, with the last panel completed in the 1800s. So they were all designed and planned out and thought, but it took six centuries to finish them completely. Like, you know, there might have been a little random part under one apse that wasn't finished. 
Tommaso's looking at me like he doesn't believe me. No, I'm just thinking, I'm just thinking some grandson is destined. Great, great, great grandson. Exactly. You know, he's, he's, you have one job in life. Well, that's what I said about the gentleman that cleaned the Duomo, the exterior sculptures on the Duomo, seven rotations of his life. And I went to his funeral. It was awesome. (laughs) Okay. Another quick thing about the Duomo, the treasure within the treasure, as they call it, is the Piccolomini Library. And that name alone is amazing. Piccolo means small. Mini means obviously mini. However, this is a family name. And you just mentioned him earlier. Tommaso, do you know who I'm speaking about? No. Piccolomini is the surname for Enea Silvio. Enea Silvio Piccolomini was the bishop of Siena in 1450. And two years later, he was elected Pope Pius ah, II. I, just, I didn't know. I didn't know. Piccolomini. Right. I love that last name. So the Pope decided to dedicate one little section of the Duomo as a library to preserve the manuscripts his uncle had collected. And those manuscripts are no longer on display, or I'm not even sure they really were ever displayed because every inch of this area of the Duomo, the library, Every inch of the room and the ceiling is covered in frescoes, mostly painted by, how's this name? Pintor Riccio, who had been an, a painting assistant to Perugino, and his students, who included Raffaele Sanzio, better known as Raphael. Hmm. So these no, two, is. these two gentlemen, these two artists, painted every inch of this library. It's as ornate, busy, detailed as the flooring. And yet every scene is a story about Pope Pius's life, a.k.a. Signore Piccolomini. Interesting, right? Right. Piccolo. <laughs> Piccolomini. Piccolo so Pius. I think, uh, are we at out of time, I believe? Yes, I we, think, are, we are out of time. Whoops, we're over, maybe. I think we should end here with the promise to share more about this amazing city. There's so much to talk about, right? Tommaso was also into the history of the Palio. Yes. All right. Next next episode, the Palio. More to come. Grazie mille tutti. Ciao, ciao. Ciao, ciao.